Well, hey, it's really great to be with you and want to do a shout out to all of you watching, uh, wherever you happen to be watching from. Uh, it has been really cool over the last several weeks to be able to gather with so many people uh, at our in-person gatherings. And yet we know that there's a, a lot of our church family that aren't really yet ready to come back to the, uh, the mass gathering of the church, and we understand that. So it's a privilege to be able to come into your living room and uh, to speak to you this way. And uh, we do look forward to seeing you when you're ready to be back uh, in a public setting with God's people. All that being said, uh, we are uh, just so excited to be able to continue into this study. But I, I do want to give a shout out to uh, those of you who are, are watching up in Mission and those of you over at Central Abbey. Uh, really cool to be able to speak to you uh, through this venue as well. So grab your Bibles. We are in 2 Timothy and we're going to finish up our study, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And in this letter, Paul encourages and he warns and he challenges uh, is his us. Well, he challenges us, but he challenges his young son in the faith, Timothy, and we get to listen in uh, to that context. The overarching theme is pretty simple. Keep running your race, Timothy. And what's most important in this long marathon of faith is that you just keep going at it. How you finish matters. Uh, so those of you who have been runners know that how you finish the race is most important. Uh, so back in junior high, or what we call middle school now, uh, I took up running as my sport of choice. Now there's a bit of a story there. Growing up in Colorado, small kid in small town USA, I tried all the sports that were out there and there were the three biggies. There was basketball, baseball, football. In the US, football is the big kahuna. In small town USA, football is like hockey is in small town Canada. And so I tried all those sports as a kid and I discovered two things. I discovered I could catch a ball and secondly, I could run, but I also discovered that I couldn't do both those things at the same time. So by about grade eight, I had made the decision that I was not going to be an all-star football player, and I took up track and field in the spring and cross country in the fall. And those of you who have run long distance will know that the coach wants to pound into your pointy little head, do not start too quickly. Pace yourself for this long distance. And inevitably, at every cross-country race, there was that kid. That kid who's literally like the ever-ready bunny, bouncing at the starting line, waiting for the pistol to fire. And when the gun sounds, he is off like lightning and leaves everybody else behind. But inevitably, midway through that course, whether it was 5K or 10K, one by one by one, the other runners are passing him as he has run out of steam. And if he finishes the race at all, he might walk across the finish line. And more often than not, we just simply saw him in the bushes puking his guts out, not finishing at all. You see, the goal of the race is to get over the finish line. And sure, you want to finish in the best possible time, but ultimately, first and foremost, you want to finish the race, how you finish matters. And so as we dive into chapter 4, I want to remind you of the backdrop. Paul is in prison. Uh, the book of Acts ends with Paul in house arrest in the city of Rome. And in that context, Paul thinks that his life is nearly over, that his death is imminent. 
And so he writes a couple letters to a young brother in the faith named Timothy, and he writes to challenge him and to encourage and to warn him. And if you were to boil down the 10 chapters that are these two letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and you put it all down into one sentence, it might be this sentence, how you finish matters. It's really the most important idea that Paul is hammering away to Timothy. And frankly, it might be the most important thing that you take with you this weekend. How you finish matters. Now, some of you simply need the encouragement to fight the fight, to run the race, to keep working the soil, uh, like a good soldier, athlete, farmer, the analogy that Paul used. But life happens. And inevitably, the mountaintops and the valleys come, and discouragement, opposition, frustration. And you, this weekend, may simply need some encouragement to just stay in the race. Just keep showing up, being faithful and fruitful wherever God has placed you. But there are others who are listening who need the opposite approach. Some who will hear this message this weekend, frankly, need a word of warning a word of rebuke or of correction, because you've gotten off track, and whether you've been distracted or just simply drawn away, or whether you've been disobedient and rebellious, you know that you're out of step, you're out of fellowship. And so Paul's warning through this letter is so clear that there are many who have abandoned the faith. There are many who have turned away from the faith and they have shipwrecked their lives. And so I'll tell you where we're headed. Uh, when we get to the end of this message, I want to pray with you and for you. And for some of you, it's simply that the oil and wine of the Spirit would be poured out over your lives and that you would find yourself encouraged and comforted, that God isn't finished with you yet. He still has a good work that he is going to complete in your life, so stay with it. But others of you, you know that you're not where you need to be, spiritually speaking. You're dabbling with sin or spiritual compromise of some sort, and you need to get back on the path. You need to turn around. You're in danger of losing your faith. A recent report by the Pine Tops Foundation entitled The Great Opportunity tells us that an estimated one million young adults across North America every year are leaving their childhood faith. Let me say that again. An estimated one million young adults across North America are walking away from their childhood faith every year, leaving behind the foundations that their families and their churches have instilled in them. And so this weekend, the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us through Paul's words and call us to either stay on or return to the path of faith. Timothy, my dear son, I'm watching person after person after person abandon the faith and walk away. And I'm writing to you, my child, with this challenge that how you finish matters. So last week we left off. There were dark days coming, and so hold on to the anchor of God's inspired word. And chapter 4 really picks up on that thought as Paul challenges Timothy to keep at his work. And we're going to look at five warnings or encouragements from the Apostle Paul. Uh, your motivation matters. Your methods matter. Your times matter. Your finish matters. And then finally, just quite simply, Timothy you matter. 
So you've got your Bibles open, I hope you do, and we are going to, rather than read the whole chunk, we're going to just walk through it verse by verse. So chapter 4, verse 1 says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. I charge you, Timothy. You see, Paul could have appealed to his personal relationship, uh, how we have traveled together, we've served together, we've suffered together. You've been at my side, Timothy, in some incredible times of harvest, and you also stood with me when we got ran out of town. And I am so proud of you, my son in the faith. So don't let me down, Timothy. Don't let me down. But Paul doesn't use that appeal. Paul raises it to a higher court, and he says, I charge you, Timothy. Now that phrase is important because it's actually a legal term. It could be translated, I call as witness, or I call witness says. See, you see, Timothy, you're going to stand in the court, and these witnesses are going to be called over your life. I charge you in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, in light of his second coming and the inbreaking kingdom. You see, all of us are going to give an answer for how we've lived our lives, and these four will testify. You can live your life worried about what other people think of you, or you can live your life for an audience of one. Your motivation matters for this life of faith. God the Father, he says, who sees and hears and knows all things. I was reminded of Psalm 139. Uh, it, it's a longer chunk, but a portion of it reads this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Where can I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? In other words, Timothy, remind yourself of the God who knows all and sees all and hears all. It matters very little what any human court of law says about your life. God the Father sees it all. Secondly, God the Son, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead. Paul refers to the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5. And in that context, it's not about our salvation, whether or not you're in or out. Uh, that is signed, sealed, and delivered. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, your salvation is secure. The judgment seat is about how we lived in response to that salvation how we lived in response to that secure gift that we have been given. It's how we are rewarded for lives of love and sacrifice and devotion to Jesus. And if that weren't motivation enough, then Paul adds these two more layers. In light of his second coming and in light of the inbreaking kingdom of God. You see, the hope of our Christian lives is this, that there's more to life than what we see in the here and now that we are actually citizens of a, a different world, a different kingdom, a different city. And that while we're here and we do life here, we live like exiles. We're, we're never truly comfortable. We're never truly at home because we know that there's a day coming. And the hope of Christ's return is what motivates us to keep on going, to be faithful. And then there is the hope and the signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. It's already here, but it's not quite yet. That's what the scriptures tell us. He is ruling and reigning, but we don't yet fully see it. Uh, it's the difference between D-Day and V-E-Day. 
that victory in World War II was won on June 6 when the Allied troops got a foothold behind enemy lines. But the war wasn't open to, over till 11 months later on Victory Day in May 8, 45, when they declared victory. So Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, his ascension was D-Day. He has established a foothold in enemy territory. And now he's mopping all things up. A couple references, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25 says, He must reign until he has put all things under his feet, and then he hands the kingdom over to the Father. So that's what Jesus is doing right now. He is mopping up the battle, and then he's going to hand the kingdom to the Father. But Hebrews 2 acknowledges, we don't yet see everything under his feet. We, we don't see it yet. But we do see Jesus. He is ruling. He is reigning. And so we live in this in-between of the already but not yet kingdom. And we cry out, O oh God, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And we labor like salt and light and yeast and mustard seeds, small things that make great impact. So Timothy, this is your fourfold witness bench. And these should motivate you to run hard and to run fast for the glory of God. The question that each one of us could ask is, why are we living the Christian life? Uh, is there some person that you were trying to please in your life? Is it because you understand it to be a socially acceptable thing to do to be a member of a church? Is it simply a, a social activity or a habit that you've gotten in? Or are you sobered by these four witnesses that are looking over the shoulder of our lives? Now, Paul continues. Remember, Timothy, in all your work that your, your method matters. Your motivation matters and also your method matters. Preach the word, Timothy. Be ready in season and out of season. Chapter 4, verse 2. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, before you press the snooze button and assume that this text is only for preachers, let me assure you that, yes, absolutely, it applies to anybody who would formally teach the Scriptures. But there is also a broad application for all of us as heralds of the Gospel. I use that word herald intentionally because it is what the original word means, to cry out, to be a proclaimer of the Word. Now, we don't use the word herald an awful lot in modern English, but it's still out there. Uh, it means news or messenger or proclaimer. Uh, hark the herald angels sing. We sing at Christmas time. The, the news that the angels brought. Uh, a lot of newspapers back in the day when we had newspapers included the title herald. In fact, the third best-selling newspaper still today in Canada is the Calgary Herald. They proclaim news. It dates back, you might think of the old movies and the little kid standing by his newspaper stand crying out, hear ye, hear ye, get your news, hot off the press. And even further back to the 1500s, the 1600s, and it was the town crier who would wander the streets clanging a bell and crying out, oye, oye, hear ye, hear ye. And in a day when many people were illiterate, when they couldn't read a proclamation, they were dependent upon the town crier to get the latest news. And so Paul challenges Timothy, and more broadly, he challenges all of us to speak out the word of God, to proclaim it. And, and there's a lot of imperatives in that single verse. The, sim the first is simply this, be prepared, be ready, in season and out of season. Stand up and be ready, Timothy. If you look back a couple pages to 2 Timothy 2.15, 
you will see this text to do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That last phrase is critical, rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, it, it's actually a medical term. It was used for doctors as they were dosing out medicine. It literally means the right dose, the right prescription in the right amount, or the right words at the right time, in the right season. Tim Keller uses the analogy of a depressed person that goes to see a professional and the different responses that they might receive. And so if they go to see their pastor, the pastor may dig under the underlying issues in their life and wonder, is there some sin in your life or some rebellion in your life that's causing this depression? Maybe you need to repent. The medical doctor will also look under the underlying issues and they might say it's physical issues. You're not sleeping right. You're not eating right. You're not exercising enough. Maybe there's a chemical imbalance and the doctor may say to you, take this pill. The psychiatrist or the psychologist would say to you, there are underlying issues in your life. So let's dig back into your childhood. Let's look at your relationships right now. You need to talk. So which is it? You need to repent. You need to take a pill. You need to talk. Well, all three might be right at any particular moment in time. And so what Paul is saying is be ready, be prepared in season and out of season to have the appropriate word at the appropriate time for the appropriate application. You've got to study the word and you've got to study human nature. You see, the challenge is this. Do we know how to apply the word in the right context and at the right time? He gives them three words. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove isn't a, a word that we use that much. It, it literally means to correct. Uh, it carries with it, the Greek word carries with it the idea of convincing someone or arguing with them or reasoning. And, and it really points to bringing something out into the light, exposing it. Let's turn on the light uh, on it. Let's get some things out on the table, you might say. Uh, the same word is used in John 3. It's used in a negative, but you'll, you'll see what it means. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And it's that final word, exposed, which is this word, reprove. So correct. Get it out into the light, Timothy. Rebuke. A rebuke sounds, means rather, just what it sounds like when someone needs to be stopped in their tracks, when we need to be told by a friend, the direction you're going in is gonna ruin your life. And honestly, most of us, when we are in the greatest need of rebuke, are in the worst place to actually receive it. Because the very thing in our life that we need to be rebuked for has often hardened our hearts, and so we're not willing to receive the word of rebuke. But sometimes that is precisely what you and I need. We need to have friends in our lives, brothers and sisters who love us enough, who will stand in our path and say to us, I cannot not say something. The path that you are on is going to lead to pain and to hurt. You've got to turn around. Reprove, rebuke, and then exhort. And exhort is really an encouraging word to comfort, to strengthen, but with an intensity to it, an urgency. It's translated in other places as we appeal to you, we plead with you, we urge you. 
In other words, I'm begging with you. So Timothy, get the word out. Shout it, declare it, proclaim it, herald it. And why is it so critical? Well, the next verses tell us this. Dark days are ahead. Your times matter. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 say, The time's coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul is circling back around again to the conversation from last week in chapter 3. The first few verses where he said the days are coming when people will have a form of godliness, but it'll lack any power. Uh, we don't need to say too much here because it's actually really straightforward. Itching ears. It's a really interesting phrase. In fact, it's the only time that phrase is used in the entire New Testament. It's used in secular Greek, but only once in the New Testament. And it refers to either itchy ears or a tickling. And so some of your translations say they will want their ears to be tickled. Others to say they need it to be scratching of the itch, if you will. It's when the listener is king. It's when the teacher is servant to the hearer. In other words, the hearers are saying, I would like you to say nice things, pastor. I'd like to hear positive thoughts, not negative thoughts. I would like you to affirm my truth. And above all, please, pastor, could you be a little more pleasant? Could you be a little more kind? Uh, it reminded me of God's conversation to the shepherds back in Ezekiel 33. And it was a dark time in Israel's history. But he says this, and I'm using Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase. He says, you become quite the talk of the town. Your people meet on the street corners and in front of their houses and say, let's go hear the latest news from God. They show up. They listen to you speak. They flatter you with compliments, but to them you're merely entertainment. A country singer of sad love songs playing a guitar. They love to hear you talk, but nothing comes of it. What Paul is telling Timothy is that people will listen as long as you're entertaining. As long as your words don't actually confront the real issues in their lives, people are happy to show up. Let's go hear what the preacher has to say this week. I hope he tells some really good stories. I can tell you this in 30 years of local church ministry, that preaching today is harder than it was 30 years ago. That people's expectations today for the entertainment value in sermons is much higher than it was when we were beginning our ministry. But look where it leads them. They won't put up with sound teaching. They'll find teachers to say what their ears want to hear. And then they do two things. They turn away from the truth and they turn to lies or to myths, the text says. The issue isn't new with Timothy. It's as old as the Bible. Uh, the Old Testament prophets, Amos was told to go home. Would you go back to where you came from and preach somewhere else? Isaiah and Jeremiah were both told, stop preaching. Elijah was told, shut up. Corinthians told the Apostle Paul, hey, Paul, preaching doesn't work anymore. Now, in that Corinthian text, it's interesting because Paul agrees with them. In essence, he says, I hear you. I get it. It makes no sense whatsoever. 
that one person can stand in front of a crowd of others in a one-way monologue and unpack words from an ancient manuscript thousands of years old and expect those words to change people's lives, I know it sounds foolish, doesn't it? But let me tell you, this is how it has always been. It's always worked this way. God has always been pleased to call people to himself through the foolishness of preaching. Ancient words through the voice of a, another human being, and he brings them to life in the heart of the hearer. But Paul warns in chapter 4, verse 4, they turn from the truth and they turn to lies. Jeremiah chapter 2, a very similar thought. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold water. They've turned away from the fresh springs of God's word, and they're drinking at mud puddles. See, C.S. Lewis, famous for so many quotes, but he said this, paraphrasing G.K. Chesterton. Once people stop believing in God... The problem is not that they believe in nothing. Rather, the problem is that they will believe anything. Let me repeat it again. Just keep it on the screen there for another moment. Once people stop believing in God, the problem is not that they believe in nothing. The problem is that they believe anything. You see, what Paul is alerting Timothy to, and in turn you and me to, is this truth, that the first step towards societal chaos, individual chaos, is when people forget their creator. When Alexander Solzhenitsyn, one of the famous Russian dissidents who died back in 2008, a survivor of the Russian work camps, when he was asked how the atrocities of the Russian gulag could have occurred in modern society, that some 60 million souls were wiped out, he summarized it in one sentence, men have forgotten God. You want to know all the atrocities of uh, the, the Soviet gulag and those 60 million souls that were lost? It boils down to simply this principle, men have forgotten God. So Timothy, this is your mission. Verse 5, as for you, be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, Timothy. Now from there, the text really becomes far more personal and intimate. Verses 6 to 8, I'm nearing the end of my journey. My time is short. I finished my race. Let's just read it. I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Whenceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul grabs two analogies, an Old Testament one and then just a, a cultural one. Uh, an Old Testament metaphor, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. To a Jewish audience, they would have known what he was referring to, that in the sacrificial system, at the grain offering and then a drink offering poured out in sacrifice, and symbolically, the, the wine that was poured out in worship to the Lord. And so Paul is saying, my life, I want it to be poured out in worship of my Creator. And then he grabs another analogy, the time for my departure. 
is at hand. That phrase was used in two significant ways. Uh, Soldiers who were striking their camp for the very last time. The battle is over, the war has been fought and won, they're tearing down the camp because they're headed home. And you can imagine that, that the soldiers who have been on the front lines of battle and they have been in the, the, the thick of it and in the dirt of it and they are longing to go home and they are striking the camp. The other analogy is the the ship in the harbor. It is getting ready to set sail onto the high seas, but the anchor is holding it down and the anchor is holding it back. And so that anchor is lifted and the ship is ready to set sail. These are the analogies that, that Paul uses. And he's simply saying this, I'm ready. If this is the end, if these trials end in my death, I have finished well. And in the last half of the chapter, we get a glimpse into Paul's heart. We're not going to read through the last uh, 10 or 15 verses that finish off this, but you can scan through it as we, as we talk together. We get inside Paul's head. We listen to his thoughts. We see him in these last chapters saying to Timothy, I long to see you, Timothy. Do your best to get here. Please, can you try to come before winter? I'm all alone over here. It's, it's Luke and there's a few of the locals hanging around. A lot of others have moved on to other fields of ministry and many have fallen away. The, the ones who've moved on to other ministry, he doesn't seem to grieve over, but this, this thought of those who have fallen away, it, it stabs at his heart. In fact, at my first defense, my first trial, no one came to stand with me. They had all deserted me. And in the midst of those thoughts, he's reminded of a guy named Alexander. It's over in verse 14. Alexander, Timothy, he's in your church. You need to watch out for Alexander. He caused a lot of trouble in Ephesus, not when Timothy was there. Timothy and Paul were in Ephesus together. Timothy gets sent ahead to Macedonia. And after he leaves, there's a riot in Ephesus. And Alexander comes alongside the Apostle Paul and he stands up and he defends the Apostle Paul's ministry but he later turned on the Apostle Paul. He became an antagonist of the gospel and he stirred up a lot of trouble in that city. And so Paul's going, watch out for him, Timothy. He will not be an ally. He will be divisive in your church. And and this is the hurt that might sting us more than any other is when a brother or a sister turns on us. When someone with whom we have shared fellowship and we've labored together turns on us. At Psalm 55, David is crying out, Lord, I, I just want to fly away and be with you. God, would you comfort me? I'm in anguish. My, my enemies are coming up against me. But then he, he, he gives this intriguing statement. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It's not an adversary who deals insolent with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. In military language, we call it friendly fire. When a soldier is injured, not by enemy bullets, but by the misdirected gun of an ally. And in church history, and I'm sure in every church today, there is too much friendly fire taking place. And in all of this, Paul testifies. 
the Lord's been faithful. If you scan through verse 16 to 18, at my first hearing, he gave me strength. He rescued me from the lion's mouth, literally. This was not a metaphor. Nero on the throne at that time had established the practice of throwing Christians into the gladiator ring and then releasing the lions and for entertainment, watching them being torn limb from limb. And so Paul goes, the Lord has rescued me literally from the lion's mouth. Thus far, the Lord had kept me. And regardless of what happens, I know that he is going to bring me safely home. This is my hope and my joy and my crown. And so Timothy, if this is my last letter, and if you don't get here before winter, in other words, if I don't see you again, then I've got to challenge you, my son, how you finish matters. You see, Timothy is one of the leaders in the New Testament that we know more about than many, many others because we've seen him throughout the book of Acts and through the letters of, uh, of the New Testament. And, and it, what Paul is saying as he's, re as he's remembering this, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Remember back at the beginning, you learned it at your mother's knee and over it at, at, at Oma's house. I watched you grow and mature in ministry as we traveled together, Timothy. I remember the first time I left you behind. You stayed at Berea where they needed more teaching because I was so anxious to get on to Athens that I left you and Silas behind and you got that church organized. You were always willing to do what needed to be done. There was no job that was below you, Timothy. I know, Timothy, Paul is saying, that I always got the limelight, but I couldn't have done it without you. Wasn't our team amazing? And you were there looking over my shoulder as I wrote that long letter to the church at Rome, and then you joined me in writing as a co-author, as the Spirit of God led us. And Timothy, I so well remember your tears on the beach at Miletus. When we had that final elders meeting, when you guys came out to meet me there at the ocean shore, and we wept together, we hugged one another, and we cried on each other's shoulder. Timothy, there's more work to be done. There's more letters to be written. And I hope you can get here soon. You've grown up, my son, and I miss you. But I've got to tell you this, Timothy, my greatest concern for you is simply this. As I get ready to sail off into the sunset, that you would keep the faith, that you would guard the deposit that's been given to you, that you would remember the foundations that were laid in your life, because make no mistake, we are living in a battle zone. And there is an enemy who has already taken out far too many of our friends. And Paul names like six different individuals by name in this text who have fallen away. So Timothy, keep the teaching of the word, keep praying, keep evangelizing, and don't be shocked by the dark times that we're living in because the Spirit of God has told us in advance that this is what's going to happen at the end of the age. The key indicators of his return is that the heat is going to get turned up and many will fall away. Indeed, many already have. They've swerved off the path of life and they've shipwrecked their lives. So Timothy, guard the good deposit that's entrusted to you. How you finish matters. Okay, we're wrapping up the study in this short letter. And if there's one big idea that Paul is hammering away in Timothy's life, is this, I'm pleading with you, my son. Make it your ambition 
that you would finish well because I've watched far too many others shipwreck their lives. Carolyn and I have been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years now. One of our staff members, I won't name him, but he is a Mexican-American, likes to call me the old dog. I wish I could tell you as the old dog that everyone I have known in our years of ministry who started out on the journey of faith have stayed on that journey with full abandon, with full passion, and with zeal. But sadly, it's not true. I'm sure that you can tell your own stories of people that you know who started out well and then have fallen away, who were raised in godly homes and given good foundations, but have chosen for one reason or another to walk away from the faith, to turn their back and to ignore, or in some cases, literally to deny their faith. Marriages that have ended because of adultery or simple neglect, or in some cases, abuse. Pastors and teachers of the word who at one point stood in front of people declaring the word of God and who have later recanted everything that they once held to be true. And so as we read Paul's letter, we hear his pastoral heart coming through. Oh, my dear son, oh, my dear child in the faith, finish well, finish well. I told you at the start, there's two groups of people that need this message. And Paul lays out both themes in our text. He both warns and he comforts. And there are some here this weekend who simply need to know that you're not alone. You need to be encouraged to, to walk out the doors of, of the weekend and into the Mondays of our lives to, to carry on for one more day, that you would lift your eyes up above the noise of daily life and get them firmly fixed on Jesus and his coming kingdom that you will be reminded of how the story ends, that the great hope and joy of the restoration of all things is what keeps us going. We know the world is broken. It's all around us it's broken, but it's also going to one day be fixed. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, O Lord, make it true today. But some others of you are in a far more dangerous position because your life might be one of those examples that Paul used to warn Timothy, Demas, Phagellus, Hermogenes, Hymenaeus, Philetus, Alexander. Two of those, Demas and Alexander, we know a little bit about. The other four are just names. But what they hold in common is that each one of these men swerved off the path of faith and they shipwrecked their lives. And so as your pastor, I have to join with the Apostle Paul in his cry to young Timothy, not knowing where you are at in your walk of faith, but knowing full well that in every congregation, every weekend, that there are men and women who are walking in dangerous territory, men and women who are living either openly or secretly in rebellion to what you know to be true. And if that is you, then I plead with you. I plead with you like Paul pled with Timothy. Cry out to your listeners, turn around, turn around before it's too late. If you want the Bible word for it, it's the word repent, but it simply means turn around. You have never run away so far from God that you cannot turn around. That's Satan's lie that tries to trap us there. How do you get things right with God? Well, there's two answers to that question. The first is, you can't. We can't do it ourselves. 
We need someone else to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. That's the first answer. But the second answer is this. How do you get things right with God? Well, there was one who's done everything that needed to be done. And our part is simply to surrender, to believe what the Bible says about us is true, to believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true, and to accept the free gift that he offers. In a word, it's simply this, will you say yes? To turn away from the fruitless path that we're wandering and to place our faith and trust in the one who's done everything that needs to be done. And then to keep walking with him day in and day out, to fight the fight, to run the race, to look for the harvest of righteousness in our lives, to guard the deposit, to finish well. So as we finish out this book of scripture, if you hear nothing else today or you hear nothing else in reading 2 Timothy, remember Paul's cry to this young leader. How you finish matters. How you end your race is what matters. So I want to pray with you and for you as we wrap up. So Lord Jesus, you know the men and women and boys and girls that are listening to this message. You know, some who are sitting at home alone by themselves or with their family or with a small group. You know, those who are gathered on our campuses listening to this message. But Father, most importantly, you know each one of us individually and you know precisely where we're at in our walk of faith. And so, Lord, I would pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would take Paul's words to Timothy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and that you would take them now and translate them to every listener. And Father, I know that there are people listening that are trying their very best to stay on the path of faith. They're working hard like a good soldier and an athlete and a farmer, but times of discouragement come our way. And so, Lord, for these men and women who simply need to be encouraged, to be reminded, the King is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. And despite all the mess that we see in culture around us, the day is coming when He is going to fully restore this creation to all its original glory and that they would be able to stay on that path, that they would be encouraged. And as they walk into this week's activities, that they would go with their head lifted high, knowing that they walk with the King of Kings. Father, there are also men and women that are listening to this message, and I know it's true every weekend, that there are men and women who have been dabbling in areas that they know that they should not be dabbling, whose hearts have grown cold and maybe hard, some who have just drifted out of apathy and laziness, and others who are actually living in full-out rebellion against you, but they happen to have tuned into this message. And Lord, I would pray by your Holy Spirit that you would bring the work of conviction that only your Holy Spirit can do. No human voice can bring conviction like that. Your Spirit is the one who has to warm up that heart and soften that hard shell. And Lord, I pray that you would give, as you said to Timothy, that the grace of our Lord Jesus would be poured out into their lives. That by your grace, Lord, you would call them to that big word, repentance, that they would literally turn around and that they would run back towards you. And I pray that there will be some that will remember a summer of 2021 at the end of a COVID pandemic that they heard a message that reminded them, I've got to get things right with God. And that this weekend, that they would dedicate themselves to walk with you and to finish well. So Lord, pour out your blessing on your people, we ask, for your glory, for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.